We're going to read Psalm 110 together, so if you want to turn there in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. So you can check out our bookstore after this service, and we will hand you one free of charge. Let me read this, Psalm 110. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Well, I'm going to start with a, a real shocker here this morning. Psalm 110 is a prophecy about Jesus. I bet after nine months of going through our epic series, you didn't see that one coming, right? That the Bible points to Jesus here again in Psalms. And I love Psalms. Truly, I I say this a lot, but truly, Psalms has to be one of my favorite books in the Bible. I read it continually just to keep my heart in the right place before God in this devotional sense. But if I had to arrange the Psalms from my most favorite to my least favorite, Psalm 110 would probably be pretty darn close to the bottom, okay? Which just shows you how dumb I am. Because as far as the Bible is concerned, Psalm 110 is one of the most important psalms in Scripture, if not possibly the most important. And it's not my favorite because I think it's kind of hard to understand some of the stuff. I don't get it. It ends sort of strangely and abruptly. And most importantly, it seems to lack some of that worshipful praise that defines so many of the other psalms. Psalm 110, I think, is primarily a theologically deep psalm more than it is a devotionally deep psalm. And when I read this psalm, I don't feel particularly moved to praise God like I do with a lot of the other psalms. And yet, Psalm 110 is so significant in our Bibles that it's quoted or referenced nine times in the New Testament. Just this one psalm. It's quoted by Jesus as a direct reference to his identity as the Messiah in three different Gospels. It's quoted by Peter in his bold address to the Jews at Pentecost when thousands of them gave their lives to Jesus. And the writer of the book of Hebrews builds his argument off of it in three different places through the book of Hebrews. Incredible. So while at first glance it it might not strike us as very significant or me as very significant, Psalm 110 has a very profound place in our Bibles. So we're going to spend our time carefully dissecting this to get a grasp more of the meaning of Psalm 110. Because like a lot of things in our Bibles, when we read this stuff real quick, we can think we understand it, understand what's going on, but we can miss a lot of the depth. Really, we have no idea. So the Psalm, Psalm 110, it develops in three phases or three movements, you could say. The first movement happens in the first three verses, and it establishes the Messiah as king. Or more specifically, it establishes the Messiah as the divine king. Let me reread those verses for you. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Okay, verse 1 again. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What I want you to see here in verse 1 is the first mention of the word Lord. Okay, look closely at it in the Bible that you're using. Is it in all caps in your version of the Bible? It should be in all caps, even if they're little caps, okay? Remember way back to the first few months of our epic series. Does anyone recall why the Bible often puts the word Lord in all caps? There should be a one-word answer to this. What is it? Yahweh, okay? That's where the original Hebrew uses the word Yahweh. So when you're reading your Bible and you see that little subscript, Lord, that looks funny... That's because the word behind our English word Lord is Yahweh. And Yahweh is the name of God that's used throughout the Bible and it refers to God Almighty, the one true God who created the heavens and the earth and who sits on his throne of glory in heaven. God the Father, the great I Am, who led Moses and his people out of slavery in Egypt. Okay, so the verse says, The Lord, Yahweh, God, God says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now the second word, Lord, there, look closely at it. Does it look different? Is it all caps? No, and it shouldn't be. Okay, it should be lowercase. And the reason is because the second word, Lord, here is not Yahweh in Hebrew. It's the word Adonai, which is a name for God, but not the name for God. Okay? Jews didn't like to say the name of God because they held it in such reverence. And so they came up with other names for God. Adonai was one of those. So we have David who wrote this psalm, and he's here talking about two different gods, essentially, using two different words to discuss them, which is strange, isn't it? Because we know that Jews are fiercely monotheistic. They only believe in one God. They only believe in one God. And yet David is saying here that Yahweh says to another God, another Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now to clarify for you, because some of you are like, "Uh uh-oh, where is he going? Is this the Sunday we throw Grady out? No, this does not mean that there are two gods, okay? This does not mean that there are two gods, but that God the Father in this psalm is speaking to Jesus And he is calling him the divine king. He is giving Jesus the status of Lord. Back when they had kings, everyone knew that whoever sat at the right hand of the king had the power and authority and the privilege of the king himself. So what we see here in the opening lines of Psalm 110 is that God the Father says of Jesus the Messiah that his place is at the right hand of God the Father. And as such, Jesus carries all of the authority of God himself. He is Lord. So with this information, let me clarify some common misconceptions about Jesus that maybe you've come across in some way, shape, or form in our culture today. Was Jesus just a great teacher of moral platitudes? No, he is the Lord God. Was Jesus just a prophet vaguely revealing some interesting things about God? No, he is the Lord God. Was Jesus just a new age hippie who liked to go around giving everybody hugs? 
No, he is the Lord God. Was Jesus just a fictional character that some people made up throughout history who today looks great on t-shirts and is our homeboy? No, he is the Lord God. David foresaw Jesus as Savior and Lord 800 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And he knew that. David knew it through the revelation of the Holy Spirit. Now, how do we know this for sure? How do we know that this is Adonai is referring to Jesus? Well, if we uh, look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 through 46. You don't need to turn there. I'm going to summarize it. But you can look this up. Matthew 22, starting in verse 41. Jesus is conversing with some super intelligent religious, leader, which, re- religious leaders, which he did pretty frequently. And he ends up asking them a question. Usually they're coming to him saying, uh, tell us about this. What does this mean? What do, you think, what do you think about this? And he turns to them finally at this point and he asks them a question about Psalm 110. And he asks them what they think it means. See, because they thought that the Messiah would be the son of King David. That he would come from the line of David. That he would be a king after David. An earthly king, most importantly. And as such... He would be important, but still lower on the totem pole of awesomeness than King David. King David would always be the standard by which every other king would be judged. And the Messiah was expected to be like King David, of his line, but still less than King David. Because it didn't get any more awesome than David. Okay? He was the cream of the crop, the standard, again, by which everyone was judged. And yet Jesus points out... That David himself in Psalm 110 called the Messiah Lord. Lord. Now, two things are striking about David's choice of this word Lord. First, Lord, the word Adonai, has divine significance behind it. It can be used to refer to a king, but it entails divinity. Okay, so this was not just an earthly king that David saw, but a divine king, a king who would also be God. And second, Who could possibly be Lord to David? If David calls this person Lord and David is at the top of the food chain, who could David possibly be referring to that would be an earthly king? This word Lord, Jim, you left your fly up here. Come get it. (laughs) This word Lord not only carries with it the meaning of divine kingship, but it has a secondary meaning, which is master. So whoever this Lord is, David sees himself as beneath him, subject to him. This Lord is David's master. And so when Jesus asks this question, what he's getting at is that through the revelation of the Holy Spirit, David knew that the Messiah who would come from his family line would be more than just an earthly king. David knew that this Messiah would be David's king and come with all of the divine authority of God himself. Not that he would come as one of many gods, mind you, because David himself was a Jew, fiercely monotheistic. But yet David knew that the Messiah who would come from his bloodline would somehow mysteriously be God himself. And so mysterious was this idea, so amazing and shocking to the audience whom Jesus is talking to, that when Jesus points it out in Matthew 22, these super intelligent religious leaders who are supposed to have all the answers, they're, they're stumped. They realize they have no idea what Psalm 110 means, and they're just dumbfounded. 
So in summary, the first verse of Psalm 110 tells us that Jesus came from God the Father with all the power and authority of God himself. And in fact, the picture that we get here in Psalm 110 is one of God the Father giving dominion of all things to Jesus. Verses 2 through 3, I'm going to touch on them real quick. They just paint a picture of this Lord, Adonai, the Messiah, as one who rules with a mighty scepter from Zion, which is Jerusalem. And he has dominion over both his enemies who refuse to submit to him and those who choose willingly to come before him and offer themselves to him. And he has a day of power, which is another way of saying that he has a coronation day, the day when Jesus will rightly be crowned King of kings and Lord of lords and all people of all times and all cultures will bow their knees to his divine authority and recognize him as God, the great I am in Christ Jesus. And so part one of Psalm 110 shows us Jesus, the Messiah, as equal to God the Father, coming from God as God to rule with all dominion over all things. Wow, there's a lot there in Psalm 110 in just those couple verses. The second movement then is verse four by itself. It says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we see that God has sworn and he will not change his mind. That this king who is king and Lord sits at the right hand of God the Father and he will be a priest forever. Okay, again, remember back in our epic series to when we talked about the role of the priest in Israel. The most important responsibility of the high priest in Israel was to make sacrifices before God for the sins of the people of Israel. But this priest in Psalm 110 is different than the other priests. Because in Israel, on the Day of Atonement, the priest would make sacrifices for the people of God, and those sacrifices would cover the sins of Israel for the previous year. And on the Day of Atonement, a temporary sacrifice would be made by the priest to blot out the sins of God's people for the previous 12 months. But the priest referred to here in Psalm 110, who we know to be Jesus, played a much more significant role for his people. He is a priest forever. And in his role in making atonement for the sins of his people, God's mind is unchanging. This means not only that Jesus will reign forever in his role as king, but he will be priest over the people of God and the sacrifice that he makes for the people of God will be an eternal sacrifice that endures forever. Personally, what this means for me, I don't know why, but recently God has been just pounding my heart with my sinfulness. And, and actually, I do know why. You know, it's so that he can impress upon me the magnitude of his grace in my life. That's why he blesses us with an opportunity to see how sinful we are. And the truth is, it's not that I've been sinning more. That, that line stays pretty much maxed out all the time. I've just been made increasingly more aware of how sinful I am. And as I've gotten older and I've grown in maturity, I've come to this sort of stunning understanding. See, I used to think that I was a sinner because I did bad things. You know the list, right? Anger, lust, lies, envy, pride, idolatry, selfishness, ego, etc., etc. Maybe 
Maybe you've had experience with a, a few of those. But I used to think I was a sinner because I did those kinds of things. But recently, God has been impressing upon my heart that even the good things that I do always have ulterior motives, even if I don't often recognize them. You know, take preaching. It's a great example. Seems like a good, godly thing to do, right? But often, even my preaching is corrupted by self-centered insecurity. My service to God coming from a desire to find out what's in it for me, and if I feel like I did a great job, God must be happy with me, and if I feel like I did a bad job, God must be angry with me, and it's all about me, 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 even when I'm trying to do the good things. The good that I do to others motivated by pride for how good I am, hopefully they'll recognize how much I'm like Jesus, and I'll love that little pat on the back, and I'll reap some reward in return, even if it's only an overinflated ego, or somebody will praise me, and I'll go home feeling good about myself for everything that I do for God that's really all about me. And even when I start out with the best intentions, so often I end up with this smug sense of superiority and how great I am that totally ruins the whole thing. And the point is that I sin when I do bad, but I even sin when I try and do good. And what a wretched man I am. What a wretched man I am. And how hopeless I am that even the good that I strive to do is tainted by my sinful heart. But thanks be to God for Christ Jesus, my great and forever high priest, who through the sacrifice of his own blood, his own death, his own life, his own perfection on the cross of Calvary, saved my wretched soul from death once and for all. Once and for all. And God the Father has sworn, and he will not change his mind, that those who repent and put their faith in Jesus will receive forgiveness for their sins once and for all. And so there's hope for a depraved and evil man like me, even someone like me, that even I can receive the grace of God. And although sin tries to have dominion over me, it cannot, because the sacrifice of Jesus, my high priest, has redeemed me and saved me. And God's mind of grace and love towards me will never be changed through Jesus. God, in his great goodness, in his mercy, in his grace, has established his own son, Jesus, to be a priest forever, to once and for all give of his own life to atone for my sins so that I might be forever right with God. It's not all about me because his grace is offered to you as well. It's extended to you too. Through Jesus, our forever high priest, you too can also come before God and you can be washed of all of your sins for all eternity. And come, come, please come. Please come. Come because it's free. Come because it is freeing. Come because you're broken. Come because you need this grace. Come because you're lonely and you're afraid. Come because you're, t- you're tired of trying to be perfect on your own. Come because you've searched and you've searched and you've searched and you've found nothing that will satisfy you. Come in desperation. Come sinful. Come tainted. Come spoiled. Come. Whatever it takes, just come to Jesus who spilled his blood on the cross of Calvary so that you could be welcomed into the family of God once and for all. And just come and repent and receive the forgiveness of Jesus.
Trade your depravity for his glory. And let him wrap you in the robes of his righteousness and fill your heart with the joy and peace that the Holy Spirit promises to bring to your life. Now, I hope that that moves you, but if it doesn't move you, if his kindness and his grace as our forever priest doesn't move you into his warm embrace, then heed the warning of Psalm 110 in the third movement of our psalm that establishes Jesus as a great and fearsome warrior whose wrath will not be turned from those who rebel from him in sin. Just so that I'm clear, Come because God loves you and he has offered you his grace freely. Come because he's good and he's gentle and he's kind. But if that doesn't motivate you, if you're one of those people who needs to be motivated by terror, come because God is eternally furious with those who refuse his kindness who diminish the work of Jesus on the cross, and we dare not dismiss or gloss over God's wrath at those who make little of his son, Jesus, who deny him. Verses 5 through 7, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. In verse 5, we have again the lowercase Lord, meaning that these following verses are referring to Jesus, the divine king and God's appointed priest to bring forgiveness of sins. But here we see him assume a third role. First, divine king. Second, eternal priest. And third, just warrior. Remember the video? Just love On the day of his coronation, when Jesus is finally and fully crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords, he will take up his sword to judge the nations for their sins. That's what he will do. And, and, you know, I read the Bible sometimes, and as a human, I wish it were not so. I wish it were not so. And many people who call themselves Christians have chosen to refuse to acknowledge this doctrine of Christianity, to, to refuse to be honest about the justice of God that will cause him to judge the nations with righteousness. And in so doing, they have lost Jesus entirely. They've given up the urgency of the gospel and they've abandoned the truth of God's word. And so we dare not turn from this doctrine. This is hard. It's hard. But it reminds us of how desperate our mission is to save the world and lead people to Jesus. This right now is the time of God's grace and his favor. Right now, God is patiently holding back his coming wrath so that his people might be welcomed into his love and grace and forgiveness first and foremost. But you need to urgently understand that on the day that Jesus is crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords, there will only be two places. There will be no in-between. There will either be behind Jesus, dressed in his holy garments, wearing the blood of Christ for your righteousness. Forgiven, accepted, beloved. Or before him as the object of his wrath. And so let me plead, you, plead with you again. 
If the love and the grace and the forgiveness of God won't draw you to your knees in forgiveness and won't cause you to surrender your life to him, then heed the warning of Psalm 110. And maybe out of fear and out of a desire for God's great justice, you will bow to him. And I can only pray that that's the case. I hope you're motivated by his love. But at the very least, be motivated by something. Because better that than nothing. Because verse 7 tells us that after Jesus had brought, has brought justice to his defiled creation, he will refresh himself with a drink from the brook and he will lift up his head and he will survey his victory as if he had put almost no effort into it at all. And in fact, he has. It took him no effort to win this battle. For the great Lord and King, the great High Priest, the great Warrior of Justice who won this battle on the cross. The victory will be his as it has always been his. There will be no struggle, just his dominion over all things that have always been in his control. And he'll just take a drink and refresh himself like it was so much of nothing. And so we see in Psalm 110 that Jesus is God. He is equal with God the Father proceeding from the throne of grace. We see that he is priest forever, not making temporary sacrifices that only cover today and tomorrow and next week, but through the sacrifice of his own blood for all time, he has cured sinners of sin. He has made us right before God, those of us who put our faith in him and trust him for grace and love and redemption. We have his righteousness. And then we see that there are those who are for Jesus and there are those who are against Jesus. And he is the great just warrior who will bring justice to earth. Now I would say there's two applications for us here. The first is that we need to let the truth of this sink down deep and weigh heavy on our hearts. Because I know that right here and right now there are people sitting in this room who know other people who on that day will not be dressed in the robes of righteousness. And may God break your heart with that truth. May he break my heart with that truth. Pray for these people. And pray for us that our hearts wouldn't be hard. Pray for this world that God would save and redeem more people out of it. Pray for your family. Pray for your friends. Pray for your neighbors and your coworkers. Pray for your children. Pray for those whom you know and you love. Pray for your enemies even. That they would come to know the grace and love of Jesus that's offered freely to those who surrender to him. And after you've prayed and after God has broken your heart and hopefully even you've shed some tears over those who don't know Jesus, then go and tell them about Jesus. They cannot know unless you tell them. Tell them about his love and his grace. Tell them about what he has done for you. Tell them to give their lives to him. Tell them what a good king he is. Show them the change that he has brought to your life. The freedom of living in grace. And I tell you, I do, I do not want to stand behind Jesus on that day and look out across the chasm of that battlefield and see in the distance someone I know and in the sadness in their eyes, hear them say, why, why did you not tell me? 
Why did you not have the courage to let me know about this Jesus? Why were you so selfish, Grady, to keep it to yourself? What were you afraid of? What held you back that would keep you from letting me know about the grace of Christ? And may it never be that people that I know and I love perish on that day because I did not tell them. If they refuse, if they reject, if they deny, if they denounce, if they hate me for it, so be it. But at least, at least, I know that my conscience is clear and I told them about my Savior Jesus. And so tell them, please, tell them, please, to come to Jesus. And now the second application from Psalm 110 is to simply fall down on our knees and worship God. You know, I started out saying, I don't think this is a very worshipful song, and man, was I wrong. Clearly, I was dead wrong. Let us humble ourselves before our great king and let us adore our forever priest and let us tremble before the warrior of justice. Let us come before the throne of grace in adoration and praise and thanksgiving and reverence that our God is king and he has reached down to save us out of sin while we were still enemies of God. And let us praise him for his glory and his grace and his kindness and his forgiveness. You realize that he looked and he chose you, not because of what you did, but because of his grace. And let us worship him that he has sworn that he will never change his mind, that his fist is closed around our hearts to save us, and nothing in all of creation can unclench the fist of God around our hearts And let us cry out in joyful worship that his day of power is coming when he will return and all things will be given over to him and his enemies will be made his footstool and he will be clothed in glory and we will be crowned in his righteousness. And you know, we dare not throw words up on a screen and just stand here with our hands in our pockets pockets, and watch instruments be played by skillful musicians and just Blurt out these words as if they mean nothing. We should come and worship and offer a joyful sacrifice of praise to our God for who he is and all that he has done for us. And let us worship our God because he is worthy to receive all praise and honor and glory. May we echo the songs of heaven that we find in Revelation. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come to worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Let me pray. God, we pray for our families, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, all the people that we know, God who don't yet know you. And God, we acknowledge that their hearts are hard. I'm sure they've heard about Jesus. But God, we pray that you would soften their hearts. God, we pray that you would break our hearts for their salvation. We pray that we would be praying people for those we love who do not know you, and even for our enemies too, God. 
that they would come to know you. And God, we pray that you would reach down into their lives in the same way that you reached down into our lives. And would you save them out of sin and clothe them in grace and righteousness. And would you make us people who are bold, bold, God, to speak the gospel truth of Christ crucified and raised for the forgiveness of sins. And Lord, would you convict us too of how little we worship you for all that you've done. And would you fill our hearts with joyful worship for who you are. May we be people who are enamored with the cross of Christ and your goodness to us in sending your son to die for our sins. For all these things, Lord, we worship you now. Amen.